You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. We hope this message is helpful to you in your journey with God. For the live stream archive of our worship services, you can visit youtube.com slash cornerstonelebanonpa. Christian community is best lived out in face-to-face relationships with one another. We encourage you to physically participate in a local church setting within your area. Learn more about our faith community by visiting cornerstonelebanon.com. For those of you who uh, are accustomed to me being here, um, you know that one of the things that I do when I'm here is pray for your, uh, invite you to pray with me for your leaders. And uh, that's how I typically like to start our time together. So we're going to do that uh, before we get started. And I just want to remind you too, we just finished up Pastor Appreciation Month and uh, the one of the, the cool things about um, our pastoral leaders and our elders is that God gives us leadership in, in a lot of different ways in our lives, but spiritual leadership creates an umbrella for us that provides a level of covering and protection, but it also... Uh, means that those spiritual leaders are people who also have uh, a different level of burden to carry. And so uh, the biblical principle is that it's really important to honor authority. And that first gets seen in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are about how to honor God. And then when you look at the next uh, set of commandments, the first one is about kids honoring their parents. And that's not ju- it is, of course, about kids honoring their parents, but in, in the family institution, the authority is the parents. But uh, in First Peter, we're told that we're to submit to every human institution created by God and that the leaders within that, even the emperor, um, who obviously we know the emperor of Rome when Peter's writing that is not a good guy. Um, but uh, it, when we have spiritual authority in our lives, we're told in Timothy, in that scenario, we're actually supposed to provide double honor for those who do the work of preaching and teaching the Word of God because the Word of God, living, breathing, teaching, walking out, praying through the Word of God is what creates the covering, not of people covering us, but of the Lord covering the community. And so the call of our leaders is to help create an environment where the, the principles of God are still governing over us. And so we want to really make sure that we're honoring and praying for our leaders um, because by doing that, we're continuing not only to bless them, but we're blessing ourselves, really, by creating a, a space where God's, God's governing. So um, I, I was just at a, uh, in Philadelphia teaching at a, at a uh, pastor appreciation service last Sunday, and I said, if you really want to honor your pastors, there's three ways that I, I really want you to think about that. One is honor the word of God. If, we lay, if, if uh, leaders labor over the word of God for the sake of the community, then we can respect them by actually obeying what the word of God is saying. Because that's why they're laboring over it, not just to give a message, but because they want it to form us as a community. So the most honoring and respectful thing I can do in that situation is actually listen to it, not just let it affect me on a Sunday morning and inspire me, but go home and meditate and say, how can this change my life in our community? So we honor the word of God. We also honor the people of God. 
when uh, we're trying to provide, when the Lord's trying to govern his people and he puts authority in place, then when we really love one another, that's like parents who get to see their kids loving each other. There's nothing that, can, uh, that parents can uh, be more honored by than when their children love one another. Um, and then lastly, honor the presence of God. We honor our leaders when we honor the word of God by saying, how can we obey you? When we honor the people of God by loving one another. And when we honor the presence of God by saying, my leaders aren't the ones to get me to God. My leaders are the ones to remind me about how to get to God. And then my role is to get to God. Um, and we honor them by honoring their work and their labor in actually making it worthwhile. And so those are the, the greatest ways to honor our leaders, in my opinion. Um, but let's just take a minute to pray for them together. Okay, Father God, we thank you so much for the leaders that you've put in place here at Cornerstone and that you've put in place in your church. And we thank you for the pastors that are here and for their spouses. We thank you, God, for the elders that are in place and for their spouses. We thank you for deacons that are in place and their spouses. We thank you for those who are leading student ministry right now, various ministries across uh, this community, God. We thank you for those who uh, provide all kinds of leadership, but we, we want to pray especially right now for those who provide spiritual covering and leadership for this congregation, that, God, you would bless them with clarity right now, personally, in their relationship with you, that you would bless them together in their relationships with one another, and that you would uh, bless them with wisdom and guidance and discernment and discretion regarding how you are moving and working for the family of Cornerstone. Bless them in that, please, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so um, my voice is doing something weird on me today. So I have a cough drop in and I have... Uh, uh, water with me. I feel great, but um, my voice, and, and it got worse when I was singing my heart out. Thanks, Joy. Um, but I always love worshiping with you guys here. Um, so I'm going to just sit down and talk a little bit lighter today. Today's going to be a little bit of a history lesson. Um, this is we're, this is uh, second, last Sunday was Reformation Sunday, but this is Reformation Days here um, for you guys. So I'm going to be speaking about a side of the Reformation that we don't normally talk about and then bring some application for us. So um, when you think the Protestant Reformation, anybody have names that come to mind initially? Martin Luther. Okay, that's the biggest one that comes to mind. Any others? Zwingli and Menno Simons. Okay, that's a little bit outside the norm. but very And Calvin. Okay, so normally people think, Zwingli and Luther and Calvin, and then Menno Simons would probably be the next one that people think of. And so when it comes to the, the Protestant Reformation that's happening in the middle of the 16th century, when we see uh, the, uh, Calvin go to the to, there's a question as to whether or not he's actually, I mean, uh, Luther go into the door in Wittenberg and, and nail in the theses there. There's questions about that now um, after historical research about how that all went down. But that's the moment we think this is it, you know, and then there's the trials of Luther and all that happens there. Um, there's a whole move of God as there always is that's way bigger than just one person. That's way bigger than one doctrinal point. Um, that there's, there's this whole thing when, when the world changes for the church, 
that's because the Holy Spirit is doing something. Rarely when the Holy Spirit's breaking out is that about one person. There's a movement that's happening, particularly post-New Testament when God doesn't just call leaders. God is revealing his glory through a people. And so God loves to sprinkle stuff out among us and then stir the pot. Um, so uh, today I want to talk a little bit about a different thread in, in uh, the Reformation. Uh, how many of you have heard of John Wycliffe? Anybody heard of John Wycliffe? Oh, lots of hands. Yeah. When you think John Wycliffe, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Bible translation. Yeah, so he's a translator. And a big reason is because Wycliffe was like, people need to know the Word of God. Like, when priests are the only ones who can read the Word of God, because they're the only ones who know the Vulgate, who know Latin, and can read it, that's no good. So we need to translate it into the common tongue so that people can read it. Now, it, it takes a couple hundred years for that to roll out because the printing press isn't at, at work yet. And so it's not like everybody, you know, and certainly they didn't have it on their app, you know, to pull up. So the, even though he's doing all this translation, it doesn't mean people are getting immediate access to it. But John Wycliffe is a, is a predecessor of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, he was a professor at Oxford. It's crazy. You can go to Oxford and just be like, holy cow, like Wycliffe was here, you know? And uh, the, the rich history, even in what we would call the Western world. Um, and uh, when we look all throughout the pages of history, it's interesting how we can go back to places that are a little bit closer to us, like going to Oxford as opposed to going to Israel and thinking about Jesus. It's like, that feels a little bit closer. But, but each century, you go back and find these saints throughout the church who played their part in the generational work, you know. And um, he was uh, executed by the Roman Catholic Church, as many were um, of these reformers. And uh, ultimately, he had his biggest beef. He had a lot of beefs. One of them was that, that people didn't have access to the Word of God in their own language. But another one was he was like, the clergy are just living large. He's like, they are the wealthiest people around, living extravagant, living lush. He's like, this is not what my Bible says, and there isn't accountability because nobody can read the Bible. So he's like, we need to make the Bible accessible so that there's accountability. Well, the church didn't like that, and uh, we know what happened for him. Since then, the church has, uh, the Roman Catholic Church came back and said, uh, we're sorry. You know, um, we got that one wrong. Um, and... Uh, Eventually, there was this group in the next couple centuries, there was this group that was called the Lollards, and the Lollards were, it was a nickname, a bad nickname that was given to people who were followers of Wycliffe, um, and they would make fun of them as, as the Lollards. So through the 15th and 16th centuries, there was this group. Now, um, at the end of Wycliffe's life, uh, last like 15 years of his life, another guy was just coming up. He was like, you know, like the people we were just praying over. Um, it would have been that age while Wycliffe was fading out. And uh, this was a very, another extremely influential pre-Protestant Reformation reformer. Um, and he was in the Czech Republic. And uh, there was a whole other kind of reformation and revival, of Bohemian revival uh, reformation that was happening at that point. And this guy had all sorts of convictions that if you just read his list of convictions, you'd be like, oh, this is Martin Luther, or this is John Calvin. And you'd be like, they're the same things, same stuff, um, same convictions. And yet, uh, he doesn't have quite the same uh, notoriety. Anybody know who that is? John Huss, yeah. 
And uh, we, what's that? Right, that was one of his questions. John, yeah, nice, yeah. John, we call him John Huss, and that's how it gets translated into the Anglo world. Uh, for, for him, it was uh, J-A-N, John, Jean, like, uh, so Jan, we'll call him Jan Huss. <laughs> it's not how they say it. Jean Huss, and a uh, very strong name. Well, this guy, deep convictions, totally was against the indulgences, which, of course, is a big part of what Luther was about, which is why they asked Luther if he was a Hussite, because they realized a lot of the things lined up with this guy. He also wanted the Mass in the common tongue, not only the scriptures in the common tongue, but to celebrate the Mass, uh, have services in the common tongue. Because um, at the time, they weren't. You go to service, and it was all in Latin, um, until a lot more recently, actually. He also was like, priests should definitely be married. <laughs> and I think he's pretty spot on on that one. Um, and he also was uh, saying there's no justification for the idea of purgatory in scriptures. Um, he was really against that. By the end of the 15th century, the end of the 1400s, um, there was at the very, very end of the 1400s, there was this group that had officially formed who were Hussites, and there was a name for this group of people, um, and it's called the Unity of the Brethren. And that's this this group of people who formed, I think it was like the last three years of the 1400s, and uh, right toward the end of the 1400s they had formed, and uh, they were followers of Huss's uh, info, or his teachings. Um, these Hussites eventually actually became the state religion, um, essentially, in their area, the local religion of their state. And because, uh, so John Huss, he was, he was martyred too, um, but as with many of these guys, after they get martyred, people are like, oops, our bad, that was good. Um, and like, anyway, the, the, uh, what happens ultimately is once this becomes the state religion, now there's schools all over the area that are teaching the principles of John Huss, and uh, this group forms the unity of the brethren. Well then, for about a century, they're the state religion, and then these wars break out. And the wars break out because the Catholic institutions are coming back in town and they're afraid. And actually, these Hussites are the ones who kind of start the, the, the war because they're afraid of what's about to happen to them. But they picked a fight that they couldn't win and they ended up getting beat. And so then the Roman Catholic Church takes back over and um, all the schools that had been, we'll call them Protestant because it was pre-Protestant, but it was essentially Protestant end up flipping back to becoming um, Catholic churches, and the unity of the Brethren group has to go underground. And all the Hussites, any of the followers of Huss, they, they have to go underground. So they go underground, and um, there, many of them scatter. Then by the next century, this is where our part of the story really picks up. The next part, the, in the next century, there's this group of them who um, they're called, they, they, they referred backwards, they're called the hidden seed. And they decide that they're going to leave Moravia, um, which is an area of the, what we now know as the Czech Republic. And uh, so they leave Moravia and they decide to go to Austria slash Germany. The, the lines were different back then than they are now. Um, and they end up on this plot of land. All right. Pause. That's where their story is, okay? And everything that we're trying to talk about today is about those guys 
and just want to give you some information about those guys and what happens with them. In the meantime, there's another guy who's born in 1700, okay? And he's born as one of the wealthiest people in all of Europe. He is loaded. These, he owns, his family owns tons and tons and tons of property. Well, a few weeks after he is born, his dad dies. Um, and so he's raised without a father. He ends up, his mom ends up getting remarried. She marries a soldier, a commander in the army. He's never around. He's always out on mission. He is essentially raised by his grandmother. Well, his grandmother is a Jesus freak. Like, she is, like, all in on Christ. And she is a prayer warrior, and she's a pietist, and uh, she's all about praying for her grandson. And so she's praying for her grandson. Well, God starts to do something in his life, like young Samuel. Something's stirring inside of him. And he gets fired up for the Lord. By the time he's nine years old, he gets sent off to boarding school. Nine years old. Think about that. Um... When he gets sent off to boarding school, he's like, he ends up studying under Frank, who's this incredible pietist himself, and he gets even more fired up about his relationship with the Lord, wants to chase after God. And, uh, but then his family, because they're one of the wealthiest families in all of Europe, um, there's massive expectations on his life about governmental roles that he has to play because back then, you know, all that property ownership, it came with natural seats in the government. And so his role was to become uh, someone who served in public office. And he really kind of resisted that. And he kept saying he wanted to be a clergy. And like his family was freaking out. They're like, you're not allowed to be a clergy. There's no way. So they send him off to law school. And when he goes to law school, he gets there and he sees everybody who's studying for law is there's just complete debauchery. Like they're just drinking their faces off. They're partying hard. It's like frat time all the time, like all of that. And he just is revolted by it because he's been, for him, he's been growing in this sense of conviction and earnestness about his relationship with God and his desire to see beautiful things happen. While he's at school, He's, he's getting into this whole missions thing. He joins this mission group that's working at sending people into missions and championing the cause of people in missions. He's praying. He's going after the word of God and all of that. And he gets more solidified in his convictions of his call for the Lord, but at the same time decides to yield to his family's will and comes back and takes his seat in the government. He gets married. And uh, it's pretty cool um, because when they got married back then, the fun thing is that they get a year honeymoon. Um, oh, I wanted to tell you one other thing before um, the fact that he gets married. He's at school, and one day he sees this painting. And I thought this was a really cool thing for Cornerstone to hear um, because you guys are always really good about art here, um, big part of this community. And he sees this painting, and it's a painting of Jesus in front of Pilate. And while he's looking at it, there's an inscription that, uh, that says, I want to quote it, because uh, I want to get it right. It says, I've suffered this for you, what will you do for me? And he's sitting there staring, oh sorry, he's sitting there staring at this painting, and he, it, it's as if the Spirit of God speaks it directly to him. And it just hits him, God gave up his life for me, and he's asking me, so how do you respond to that? 
How do you, what, what are you going to do in response to that? And it sets him on this journey where he is like now even doubled down, more committed than ever to say, how are we going to change the world for Jesus? Well, he ends up marrying uh, a girl named Erdmuth. Do we have any Erdmuths here? No? Okay. Okay. Her middle name was Dorothea. We might have some dots or Dorothy's here. I don't know. Um, and uh, uh, they spent a year on their honeymoon, which is cool. Year-long honeymoon. And uh, while he's on his honeymoon, he spends time at his grandma. His grandma has a ton of property. He spends time at his grandma's property. And he decides to buy a plot of land from his grandmother. And uh, a quote from him is that, I bought the, he, this, this, there was people who lived on this area, and he said, I bought this estate because I wanted to spend my life among peasants and win their souls for Christ. And so he's like, this is a place where there's people who are living in tough situation. I want to buy it so, I, like, so they can't say anything about me wanting to hang out with them. <laughs> you know, like since I'm their landlord, I get to hang out with them. Um, and uh, during the honeymoon, he went to see the property um, that he bought for this purpose of being with people who were in need and being able to share the gospel with them. Who does he find when he gets there? These refugees from Moravia, the unity of the brethren people, who are looking for a place to live. He gets there and he sees them. And remember, his hope is to share the gospel to people who are hurting. When he sees them, he loses it because he's never seen faith like he saw in them. And he's never seen community like he saw among them. And now he realized that he was the evangelized. And uh, in this moment, he's like, what can I do to help? And these people are just full of joy. And they say, well, we need a place to live. And so he opens up his property and says, you can build a village here. And this is the beginning of a village called Ernhut, which is the first Moravian settlement and it was on the property of Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, which is his name, that is a mouthful. And uh, so eventually, uh, within a couple years, Zinzendorf sees what's happening in Ernhut among these Moravians. And it so grabs a hold of him that he resigns from his places in government. And he decides to step in into leadership at, uh, at this uh, community because he's been already deeply trained in the scriptures. I mean, rooted in the scriptures. So when it comes to Bible knowledge and theology and all that, he's got like a wealth behind him. And, uh, and, and these guys, they love the Lord, you know? They love the Lord. And so he moves into the community. And this community, it's, it's communal living. I mean, and um, very quickly, by the time he gets there, there's about 600 people in this village, in this community. And they share everything. Um, and they love the Lord. They have... Uh, throughout the day, they have different times where they pursue the Lord together. And they're all kind of broken up into these groups they call choirs, which are um, uh, uh, kind of groups that meet to pray and, and seek the Lord together, um, bigger than what our small groups would be. Um, and, uh, and, and they were deep, deep, deep rich community. It was not a church. They still attended the local Lutheran church. Um, although this group, it was made up of Reformed people, it was made up of Lutheran people, it was made up of Roman Catholic people, it was made up of Independents, it was made up of Anabaptists and Brethren, it was made up of 
all sorts of people living in this community, and they had a deeply held conviction that there was only one church. Sound familiar? <laughs> I like when I read that, I was like, oh my goodness, it's rare throughout history to see uh, people who go after movements that are their, one of their primary objectives is to bring unity to the church as it exists. And that's what they were doing in this Moravian community. Um, and so uh, Ernhut, this, uh, this village, it's, it, what it means, translated, is the Lord's watch. Um, so that's what Ernhut means, is the Lord's watch. And this is where it's both the Lord is watching them and covering them, and they are watching the Lord um, and seeking the Lord. Um, now, here's the thing, and they were working on all living together and being unified together, but it didn't go well. For the first five years, while Zinzendorf was leading, it didn't go terribly, but they just could not get to the spot where they were flowing. It was like a grind, and their theological differences really hurt them. Personality differences were a struggle. And so there was all this tension and this problems between them. And so at one point, they sit down and they say, this is in, um, I think this is in, right, it was right around like 27, uh, 1727. Um, and they start seeking the Lord and saying, we realize that the problem is not you, God, that your word's clear, that we're to be unified. The problem's us. And um, we have too much self-love, is what they called it. Too much self-love. Uh, and that they were, in other words, they were seeking their own pleasure rather than one another's good. And so they started to repent of this and say, God, make us one. Make us one. Um, they just pray, pray, pray. Two things happen. This is incredible. Firstly, um, the, the, the rector, the local priest of the um, Lutheran church where many of them attended, was watching this community and grew deeply in respect for them. And so he decides to come over to the village and serve the Lord's table to them, which is a pretty amazing thing. I mean, you have this Lutheran priest who's going to be serving communion to Roman Catholics and to Anabaptists and all of that, right? And, but he just decides, like, this is of the Lord. So they have this communion service. They've been repenting for a few months. Second thing that happens is that um, Zinzendorf meets a guy named Anton Ulrich. And Anton is, he's an African slave. He's a valet. Anybody watch, um, what is it? Uh, Downton Abbey, thank you. Downton Abbey. And there's like the valet, you know? Well, so the, the, he's the valet. Um, he's an African slave. He's been enslaved, but he comes the, the valet of a Czech count, a, 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 a count from Bohemia, from Czech Republic. And so he, um, he, and they're traveling through the area. He and Zinzendorf meet, and it's like in the courts or somewhere they meet. And so Zinzendorf, as he is, he's like this curious guy who really likes to hang out, not so much with the political elite, but he likes to find their servants and hang out with them. That's how he works. And so he starts talking to this guy. He's like, where are you from, you know? And he, and he finds out he's from Africa, and then he hears about what's happening with these people being enslaved in Africa. And his heart's broken. And he says, do your people know about Christ? And he said, no, they don't. 
And he said, you got to come to Ehrenhut and talk to us. So he invites Anton, this slave, this valet, to come and speak to the people of Ehrenhut. And this priest of the Lutheran uh, church comes to provide the Lord's table for them. In this time, the Holy Spirit completely breaks out. Straight up, like, and they weren't expecting it. Like, and, and one of the things that I love about this is that they were, they, they were trying to be unified and trying to submit to the scriptures. But when they broke the bread together and took the cup together, the signs of the covenant that we each are a piece of Christ, something about them taking communion together, celebrating the very institution that Christ put in place to show at the table that we're unified and together, bam, you know? And also, when they, you, you also remember in the New Testament what happens when Jesus is ascending to heaven and what he says to the disciples, right? That I'm going I'm to make you, uh, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. You're going to do all of that. Uh, but before you do, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem and you're going to go hang out and pray. And you're going to seek my face. And, they, and he said, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, then you're going to do these things. Well, God had a plan for the Moravians. And their heart was to serve God, but they weren't able to get it figured out. Well, in the meantime, God was going to give them a mission. And God was going to allow them to, to understand what this covenant they had together in Christ actually looked like. And out of it, God was going to do something incredible. I would imagine that most of us in this room have yearned for revival. That many of us in this room have yearned for the moments where God sparks. And some of us have experienced uh, reviving moments in our lives where we've just been like that moment you're in a service or you're in a, doing something with the Lord and boom, the presence of God is tangible. And you're like, man, if I could just live in this place all the time, all would be good. It's funny throughout history how God like, he chooses these moments, and we don't get to control them. God has his purposes, but there are things that we get to do to pursue God. The three big things that come out of the Moravians in this moment are things that rarely are talked about compared to Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, but in my opinion have as much or more impact on the history of the church and the future of what was going to happen after them. The first thing that happens, they started praying at that communion service and they didn't stop praying for a hundred years. 24-7 prayer for a hundred years, nonstop. Longest prayer meeting known in history. It ends at the second great awakening, essentially. Um, and so, and Jonathan Wesley, who you might know of, uh, you know, great, is massively inspired by these guys, deeply informed by the teachings. Many believe that it was the long-term prayers of these Moravians that led to the, the Second Great Awakening and to all that happened uh, through uh, the Wesleyans, which if you look across American history and all of that's happened in Western church history, very few movements have had more impact than that. Second thing that happened, when Anton Ulrich was there and shared about what was happening in Africa, these refugees who, could, who, you know, they didn't have anything. They were completely broke. They themselves were refugees who were holding up on this land. When they heard about what was going on in Africa, within a month, 18 of them, out of a few hundred, 18 of them 
left, moved to Africa for the rest of their lives to dedicate themselves to teaching the word of God to these people. The, the, the Moravians became uh, one of two missions movements that were the first of Protestant mission movements in modern history and absolutely transformed what modern missions are and were. They set the pace for it. And, you know, if you go down to Lidditz and you see, you know, the Moravian stuff there, you go over to Bethlehem and look at all, these are these villages that they set up that were like Ehrenhut. And they did this all over the world. When they came to America to do it, they were primarily targeting Native Americans. When they went to set these things up, they didn't set them up for the wealthy. They set them up for the broken, for the needy, for the ostracized, for the have-nots. And so they would go to places. They were going to Iceland. They were going to Africa. They were going to the Native Americans. They were going to all these places and setting up these villages. And they were having incredible, they were seeing incredible things happen in their missions movement, having incredible time of seeking God in prayer. And then the thing that's amazing is they set the tone for what Christian community actually looks like. And most of the time, when you see people go after a Christian community like this, it gets really wonky really fast, super weird, and it turns into a cult. And some of that happened. Like, you can go over to Ephrata, and you can see where Conrad Beisel was at the Ephrata Cloister. And you're like, okay, that got creepy quick, okay? And uh, all of that was a derivation of this movement. But the heart and soul of what the Moravians went after is marked of all the things that we just said, one of the greatest missions movements that's kind of like the, the embryonic seed for all modern missions, the missions that allowed the gospel to go all around the globe, really started out of this prayer meeting. And you have this great picture of community, what it looks like, like the Acts 2, Acts 4 kind of thing where people are sharing all they have and all of that and just seeing a great things happen. This is what they did. And you see prayer happen like people seeking the Lord, hardcore. All of that happens. And yet so often when you read the pages of history, the thing to me anyway that stands out the most about these Moravians is this. Everyone saw them as the happiest people they knew. So often when you think about reformers, you think about grief, you think about lament, you think about people who are muscling it. Man, John Calvin, his stomach, they said like he just had a total mess in his stomach because he had so much anxiety all the time that he's dealing with. The thing that was really unique about these Moravians is they said everyone wanted to hang out with them. They were the funnest people to hang out with. And the reason is, is because they kept it really, really simple. God loves us. We are so blessed that God loves us. And we want others to be blessed with the fact that Jesus died on a cross, has forgiven all of our sins, and lets us participate in this work. And their great mantra was they had this picture. There's, you maybe have seen the Moravian flag. It's a flag that it's this, this symbol that has a, a lamb carrying a flag. And it says, uh, it says that the lamb, our lamb is victorious. And one of the great cries of the Moravians is when they would send out their missionaries, they would say, may the lamb of God receive, may the lamb of God receive the reward of his suffering. And it goes back to this painting that, that Zinzendorf saw. I have suffered this for you. What will you do for me? And that 
what's interesting is that did not translate into this heavy religious feeling of duty. This became God of the cosmos loves me and invites me to bring something of value to him and to the world. And they said, no one sang like the Moravians. They sang with all their hearts. They laughed all the time when they were hanging out together. They loved celebrating the Lord's table at the tables, constantly enjoying each other's presence. Can you imagine why that would be a magnetic thing? And to do that among those who are impoverished and who are broken. It's an incredible thing. I uh, have spoken here before. i got to wrap it up. Uh, I, sorry. I just realized the time. You put this thing here for me and I didn't even look at it. Um, So uh, I got to wrap it up. The the, uh, three directions the Moravians went are directions that we've spoken of consistently. Um, Up, in, and out. They went, they pursued Christ in prayer, up. They pursued Christ in community, internally. They pursued Christ out in the mission. And Zinzendorf, like there's these great quotes about it. Um, You know, in, in prayer he says, I have but one passion, Jesus and him alone. This is it. Like the only thing I want with my life, the only thing I want with my life, it's not that I want to be successful in mission. It's not that I want a cool community. It's that I want Jesus, and Jesus is on the mission, so I'm going after him. It's that I want Jesus, and Jesus says he's in the community, and so we're going to do community. I want Jesus, and I find Jesus in prayer, so I'm going after Jesus. He's like, that's it. I just want Jesus. That's what I want. And he said, also, he said, there is no Christianity without community. There's just none. Speaks profoundly to us who live in an individualistic world. And then he says this about mission. He says, missions, after all, is simply this. Every heart with Christ is a missionary. Every heart without Christ is a mission field. That's simple. Every heart with Christ is a missionary. And every heart without Christ is the mission field. And I just want Jesus. And we got to do it together. Very simple, full of life. Um, my son, Evan, I wish he could have been here with us today. Um, two years ago, I started asking him what he wanted us to pray for. And uh, he said, I want to hear God. My relationship with the Lord just feels so one-sided. I feel like I read my Bible and I pray, but it just hits a ceiling, and I don't hear anything coming back the other direction. So, of course, we pray, you know. Um, Pray the same thing we were praying for all the students here this morning with Samuel. Um, This summer, well, last, last winter, we went to El Salvador. We have a work in El Salvador, and we took him with us. And while we were there, we were hanging out at an orphanage, and he met a kid who was his own age, a student who was his own age, and he looked at this guy's life, and he was full of joy. And he said, Dad, i got to get back on the field. i got to go back again. So this last summer, he went with teen missions and spent his summer in Zambia, in Africa. Um, and while he was there, he was getting ready to go. He spent two weeks in Florida at a boot camp. And talk about roughing it. I mean, these guys, like bucket showers. It was like in the 90s and 100s. And it was sleeping out in a tent in the swamp. And... Uh, at night, they would have worship services. And um, they showed live stream of the worship services. And Jen and I would watch the live stream, and they would scan. And we saw our son going hardcore after the Lord in worship. And we were like, well, this is not him. What's going on? 
we went down, they had a commencement service at the end of the two weeks um, where they would send them out to whatever country they were going to because it was all these kids going to all these different countries that were there. And when I saw him, I said, hey, Evan, what's going on spiritually? And he just starts weeping. And he's a real cerebral guy. You know, he's not an emotional guy that way. And he just says, I met God in ways that I never thought I would. And he just starts talking about all these encounters that he was having with the Lord. And since he's come back, he's been able to share his story about what the Lord did. Um, It's been really cool. And as he was reflecting on it, he began to realize that what he needed was to get outside of his own head where his relationship with God was that he just wanted something from God, but he needed to get into a spot where his life wasn't his own, but it was for other people and allow God to flow through him. And when he wanted God just for his own relationship, it's not that God doesn't want to just relate to us. God is just a relational God, but he wants to be about us sharing that relationship with others too. He wants the family to work. And so as soon as Evan gave that part of his life, gave up his summer to go pursue the Lord, something sparked for him. And that's not a formula. It's not a thing. It's one of those things where God breaks out the way God wants when he wants. But looking back and realizing that was a key part of it. And for us in our relationship with God, sometimes we need to press into prayer more. Sometimes we need to press into the community more. Sometimes we need to get back in mission and realize that our lives can't be about us, that they got to be about the call. And um, so uh, just a few things. I promise I'm wrapping up very fast here. Art was a key thing. It was key. When you do this stuff, it's not a waste. Grandma's prayers, I can say that for my son. I can say that for Zinzendorf. Grandma's prayers, grandpa's prayers, mom and dad's prayers, community's prayers, they do something. Pray, pray. Their rugged commitment to be together, even though it wasn't working, laid the groundwork for the Holy Spirit to break out. So when it's not working and we're not seeing revival, being honest about the fact that it's hard, but staying with it was really important. God works spiritually across generations. Wycliffe to Huss to Zinzendorf, Wesley, us. We each have a role to play. Which directions is God calling us to focus a little more on in the up, in and out right now? Last thing, Count Zinzendorf is the rich young ruler who actually said yes. Every one of us has agency. Every one of us has a platform. It was not given to us for our comfort. It was given to us to bless those who need it for the sake of knowing the king. No matter what you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you don't have, you have something. But it wasn't given for you. Count Zinzendorf had a lot, and he used a lot. He didn't sell it all. He gave it bit by bit his whole life to everyone, just flowed and lived among the poor and said, I'm going to use every ounce of platform I have to bless others. Incredible gift. Band, you can come up. We're going to close in prayer right now. As we think about this moment of prayer, I want to think of this, first of all, quietly, 
as we uh, reflect on what is our agency, what is our call, what does it look like to joyfully pursue Jesus with every ounce of our being and to understand that every resource we've been given is an opportunity to meet Jesus in the mission. Let's just be quiet for a second and think about that. The church I was raised in, when we would give the offering, at the end of the offertory, we'd come up and bring the, they'd bring the plates up. And they would always sing this song. We give thee but thine own, whatever gift may be. All that we have is thine alone. I'll trust, O Lord, to Thee. We thank you for the invitation, the gift that's been given to us. We want to entrust it back to you and experience the incredible joy of walking with you in your mission. In the name of Jesus, amen.